listening to Sunday Sermons from Warren Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about us, visit warrencommunitychurch.org. If you have your Bibles this morning, uh, I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, and then we'll go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, as you're turning there, I just want to say this. I am not an expert on this topic. What I have done is a lot of research and a lot of prayer. And today I just I want to talk simply about what critical race theory is and how it's a problem. But ultimately, how do we respond? And I think that's been the question that we've tried to answer in all of these topics we've talked about over the last several weeks is, as believers, how do we respond? Uh, John MacArthur says that critical race theory and social justice is absolutely the most challenging thing that the evangelical church has faced in a hundred years. And that it is set out to destroy uh, evangelicalism as we know it in America. And so today I want to expose it. Um, if you come for a dissertation on critical race theory, you're not going to get it. But if you come to hear from the Word of God on how to handle it, then you'll be hopefully satisfied uh, one of the things I, I want to do, though, is I do want to define it. I do. I, I will tell you this. I'm going to be quoting a lot of people, and some of the things that I'm going to quote are going to be very disturbing. Uh, it's going to probably make you angry. Uh, but just remember that vengeance is God's, and our role here is to be gospel-driven. And, uh, but I just want to expose and be honest about what I have found, uh, and I will only tackle a brief, very, very small uh, part of this, uh, this topic. Uh, 2 Corinthians 10 verse 3 says this, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and this right here, Every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. This is a stronghold. But with strongholds, we can't fight them with carnal-minded things. We have to be willing to go to the Word of God. We have to be willing to get on our faces and not be complaining about it, but be part of the solution, which can only be found in Scripture. And critical race theory and the whole social justice movement is definitely fighting against the knowledge of our God. Uh, one way we know that is they basically say that God has made a whole lot of mistakes. And we know that God has never made a mistake. Matter of fact, he's incapable of making a mistake. If your God is so small that he makes mistakes, you're in trouble. My God, the God of the Bible, the God who sent his only son, Jesus, to come and die for my sins and your sins, he doesn't make mistakes. And that's the God we're going to lean on. That's the God we're going to go to today. So what is critical race theory? I'm going to talk about the origin of it. I'm just going to go through some things for a minute, and then we're going to jump back into the Word. But the origin of critical race theory, and I'm going to say CRT a whole lot because I just think it'll lessen my time here if I don't say critical race theory every time. Uh, CRT. Uh, 1989 was a big year for many reasons. Uh, one, that's when the World Wide Web came into existence, how that has changed all of our lives. Uh, one of the big things that happened in 89 was the Berlin Wall came tumbling down. And y'all remember that if you were here at that time. And then a thing that changed everybody's life is the Nintendo Game Boy came out. I don't know if that really changed anything for me because I never have been that guy. But for a lot of people, it changed uh, the world. But it was also the year that CRT was officially born. A man by the name of Derek Bell... Some of you may have heard of him, Harvard Law professor, had a meeting with some colleagues in Wisconsin, and this is where critical race theory was actually birthed as we know it today. 
Baal is known as the altar, author of CRT, and his protege, who you'll hear her name throughout, if you ever read or study much about critical race theory, you'll hear her name, Kimberly Crenshaw. She wrote a paper, and this paper is kind of what shaped a lot of this, and the title's really long, but in case you are interested and want to read about it, I'm going to give you the title. It's called this, Demargin Demarginalizing, I can't even say the words, Demarginalizing the Intersection of Race and Sex, a Black Feminist Critique of Anti-Discrimination Doctrine, Feminist Theory, and Anti-Racist Politics. Uh, so go read that and enjoy it. Um, out of this paper was the introduction of what is known as intersectionality. And if you've ever read much about CRT, you'll know that this is a big piece of it. But listen how she defines this. And what I want you to pick up on is this is ultimately not about race is what we know race to be. Uh, this is a much broader thing. Uh, she says this, Our experiences of the social world are shaped by our ethnicity, race, social class, gender identity, sexual orientation, and numerous other facets of so social stratification. Some social locations afford privilege, being white, while others are oppressive, being poor. These various aspects of social inequality do not operate independently of each other. They interact to create interrelated systems of oppression and domination. The concept of intersectionality refers to how these various aspects of social location intersect to mutually constitute individuals' lived experiences. And that's found in the Encyclopedia of Diversity and Social Justice. So this is what she's saying, that there are levels of racism. If you happen to be born a black lady in America, she says that's one level of oppression. If you're a lady, that's another level of oppression. If you are a gay black lady, that is three levels of oppression. See how they just class everything and pile it on top of it. She says, this is the way that we are now defined. And what this is, is an extension of Marx's school of thought on conflict theory, which was his view of society as a group of different social classes, all competing for a limited pool of resources such as food, housing, employment, education, and leisure time. And this is not a timeline, this is a fault line of how all this came to be. It continues with the idea of hegemony, which is what takes place when a dominant group imposes its ideology on the rest of society. Robin D'Angelo, another big name in today's whole CRT social justice movement, says in her book about hedge, I can't say the word really good, hegemony, hegemony, is social control achieved through conditioning rather than physical force or intimidation. So what do you see there? You see that they're claiming it's a system that has been, been used throughout all this time. Critical theory was birthed from the Frankfurt School of Thought. And if you've never read that, you need to. You need to read these papers. And all they did is modified Marx's idea of Marxism because he tried to topple capitalism and couldn't do it. So what did they do? They went back to the drawing board, and this was their way of addressing structural issues was what they called inequity. Their desired outcome was to identify people and institutions that could make changes and help them reach their goal of social transformation. No, notice this, and you'll hear this throughout the rest of this message. They do not care about transformation. They want to burn everything down and rebuild to their desired outcome. They don't want to reconcile. They want to burn down. And so that's the whole thought behind all of this. So understanding critical theory, which is where critical race, they just plugged race in, theory came from. That's where the words critical and theory get their meaning. It is a theory in the sense that it's a way of explaining how society works. And it's critical in the sense that it assesses and challenges the way groups exert power or are oppressed by that power. So critical simply means they're looking for something wrong is all they're doing. So what critical theory tries to do is understand society by viewing it primarily as interconnected groups 
which are related to each other as powerful or oppressed, advantaged or disadvantaged, privileged or discriminated against. There's a lot of words here. I'm going to preach in a minute. This is just warming you up. Aren't y'all excited? I'm giving you the background. Uh, UCLA Luskin School of Public Affairs defines critical race theory this way. CRT recognizes that racism is ingrained in the fabric and system of the American society. The individual, now just listen to this. The individual racist need not exist to note that institutionalism, racism, is pervasive in the dominant culture. This is the analytical lens that CRT uses in examining existing power structures. CRT identifies that these power structures are based on white privilege and white supremacy, which perpetuates the marginalization of people of color. That's the definition of CRT. And there's a whole lot more that could be said about the origin. But what are we warring against in here today? Uh, what's the problem with it? Well, CRT is rooted in assumptions of diversity, equity, and inclusion. They use the term equity where Dr. Martin Luther King used the word equality. And the difference in equality and equity is equality simply means everybody has the same starting point. Everybody's offered the same starting point. Equity means everybody deserves the same outcome. And that's where it gets really bad and wrong because everybody does not deserve the same outcome. We wasn't created by God to serve the same, to, to, to have the same outcome. And one of the things that I kind of fought through with this is the people who scream this whole CRT thing is would LeBron James want to be Matthew Watkins? Just saying. Does he want to be a white preacher in Somerville, Tennessee? Or does he want to be a multi-millionaire playing basketball for a living where everybody praises him? You see, the problem with it is that we all do not deserve the same outcome. The only same outcome we deserve is the wrath of God. And Jesus took care of that. And so the thing is, is this whole idea of equity and equality, because everybody's not the same size. Everybody doesn't have the same intelligence. Everybody doesn't have the same strength. But is that not what makes humanity so beautiful is the fact that even in this room we can take our differences and use them to complement and build one another instead of destroying one another. Some of you are going to disagree with me here, but I'll tell you that I believe a lot of this infiltration started when we started handing out participation trophies. Because I believe that when a kid works for something, they deserve to be rewarded. And the one that doesn't want to do nothing, they don't deserve it. Because then it creates this idea of entitlement. And I deserve what that person deserves, even if I give less of an effort. And what that does is that begins to build up classes. We need to teach our children, if they want something in life, they need to go all in and be disciplined and motivated to work for it and not expect anybody to give it to them. So we can see where it's even influence started infiltrating in sports at young ages. But what it does is it causes division. And this has been the ploy of the enemy since the beginning of time. Did not the serpent come into the garden? And he, 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 he questioned what God's authority was, and he said, did God really say? Notice what happened is then they fell into this idea, well, why is God withholding such a wonderful thing from us? If God really loves us, then surely he, he shouldn't withhold that. And so they partook of something that God definitely told them not to. And the moment they did it, it caused a division. But this is where it gets really bad is that neither one of them had the backbone enough to stand up and say it was me. They blamed somebody else, which is what critical race theory does. It blames somebody else for your problems. Well, it's, it's their fault because they were born in privilege. So it's their fault that I turned out the way I turned out. 
It's their fault that my father was not present. It's their fault that I chose to be in a gang and on drugs. It's their fault. And really, it's not their fault. It's a choice that you make. And then we see that blame game play out and that division play out, not only with Adam and Eve, but also in their family. Do you see the generational side of it? Because when, when God accepted one uh, uh, sacrifice over the other one, what happened? Cain got mad and said, well, Abel had a better opportunity than I did because he was the one over the meat and I was the one over the grain. Somebody got it wrong. And what did he do? He killed him. Division. And you just keep walking through and it's the same old story that the enemy has always tried to use. And I want to read some statements from not only Derek Bell, but also from some of the lead voices in CRT today. And I promise you just hear it with love because it can make you mad. But I just want you to see the division. This is not me. This is them. I'm quoting them. Derek Bell. And I want you to notice where all of them come from. Derek Bell was a professor at Harvard Law School and, as I said, the founder. This is his quote. Beyond the ebb and flow of racial progress lies the still viable and widely accepted, though seldom expressed, belief that America is a white country in which blacks, particularly as a group, are not entitled to the concern, resources, or even empathy that will be extended to similarly, similarly situated whites. Kimberly Crenshaw, Derek Bell's protege, Professor at UCLA and Columbia Law. The way we imagine discrimination or disempowerment often is more complicated for people who are subjected to multiple forms of exclusion. The good news is that intersectionality provides us a way to see it. Richard Delgado, professor at University of Alabama Law School. Critical race theory questions the very foundations of the liberal order, including equality theory, legal reasoning, enlightenment, the rationalism and neutral principles of constitutional law. Gloria Ladson Billings, professor at University of Wisconsin, Madison School of Education. Have you noticed where they're all at? Universities. Every one of them. Much of reality is socially constructed. Racism is a permanent fixture of American life. Robin D'Angelo, professor at University of Washington School of Education. All white people are invested in and collude with racism. The white collective fundamentally, fundamentally hates blackness for what it reminds us of, that we are capable and guilty of perpetrating immeasurable harm and that our gains come through the subjugation of others. Barbara Applebaum, professor at Syracuse University School of Education. All white people are racist in the use of the term because we benefit from systemic white privilege. Generally, whites think of racism as voluntary, intentional conduct done by horrible others. Whites spend a lot of time trying to convince ourselves and each other that we are not racist. A big step would be for whites to admit that we are racist and then to consider what to do about it. It's not an individual choice anymore. It is a system that they say, regardless of how you feel, you're racist because of your skin color. Herbert Marcuse, philosopher of the Frankfurt School of Critical Theory. Repressive tolerance, the idea that being tolerant is a form of complicity with intolerance and that the intolerant speech must be answered with violence. I thought this one was interesting from this same guy. Those who devote their lives to earning a living are incapable of living a human existence. So quit work. These, well, never mind. They're teaching our children. Ibram um, X. Kendi. This is, he's the big voice. And he's the one that's causing a whole lot of problems. Director of the Center for Anti-Racist Research at Boston University. You want to know where all the violence comes from? Just listen to this. The only remedy to racist discrimination is anti-racist discrimination. The only remedy to past discrimination is present discrimination. The only remedy to present discrimination is future discrimination. The opposite of racist isn't not racist, it is anti-racist. Wow. 
Do you see the divisiveness in those statements? The fact that every one of them are speaking poison out of their mouth to divide. And you can't help but be a little bit angry about it. But the reality is, is this is the enemy at work through people. And there's a whole new movement in America, y'all. And it's called anti-racism theology. And I want you to listen to this. It's a whole new movement. And as Vody Balkan points out in his book, Fault Lines, and that's this book right here, and I would ask if you are interested, you need to read this book. Because he is a black man, a black Christian, a black pastor who has been blacklisted because he stands out against critical race theory. And he's all over YouTube, he's all, and he's an amazing preacher. Uh, but this is what he says about this anti-racist movement that Ibram Kendi has really came up with. They have their own cosmology, uh, critical race theory. The original sin is racism. The law is anti-racism. The gospel is racial reconciliation. The martyrs are Trayvon, Mike, George, and Breonna. The priests are the oppressed minorities. The means of atonement is reparation. The new birth is wokeness. The liturgy is lament. The canon is critical social justice. Their theologians are D'Angelo, Kendi, Brown, and their catechism, and you're going to know this, say their names. And that's the new movement. And it offers no salvation, only perpetual penance in an effort to battle an incurable disease. And what are they doing? They're using well-known words. They use words like the gospel. They use words like the atonement. They use these words and they tie it close enough to Scripture to where even evangelicals are not picking up on the fact of what they're trying to do. And they're falling to it. Critical race theory is in opposition to what Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. fought for. He fought for equal opportunity for all in a colorblind society, yet it's been set aside for modern critical race theorists in favor of divisive identity politics and collective grievance. That's what the fight is, is that they want to divide and ultimately conquer. And racism is no longer an individual sin, but it is a system that includes America only, precisely white America. And today, one of the number one uh, crimes that's being committed is Asians are being attacked and, and, and robbed by African Americans, but it's not their fault, it's the white person's fault because we created this system. Our founding fathers created a system that benefits us. But do you realize that America is the only nation outside of Great Britain that has abolished slavery? Every other nation in the world still has slavery. Over 40 million slaves worldwide and it's still being treated as if it's our problem, our fault. So how do we respond? What is the real problem? Well, turn with me to 2 Corinthians 5, and I want to just get through this. What is the real problem? And I don't believe the tension is race. The tension is not race. The tension is sin. Because CRT really doesn't have anything to do with race. It has to do with class. It has to do with the desirable outcome by a group of people. It is a system that is filled with destruction ideologies. It is identity politics where everyone must be labeled in a class. And certain classes are the problem and should receive the most hate. And all they want to do is destroy, burn down so they can build back up. But I was reading this passage and this just jumped out at me. And I just want us to talk about it for a second. 9 through 14 or 13 says this, Therefore, now let me preface it. This is Paul talking to uh, the church of Corinth, and he just got through talking about the assurance of the resurrection. And we're excited about that, right? I mean, come on. Uh, we're not going to all die. You know, we're going to be raised again. It's all kind of good, good news there. Uh, and then he turns to this idea of the judgment seat of Christ, or this truth, not the idea of the judgment seat of Christ. 
And he talks about being reconciled to God. He says this, Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to Him. Well, I want to ask the question today, what, what is your aim? What is your goal? What is your ambition uh, when it comes to how you respond to the things that are maybe against you or make you feel uncomfortable? How, how do we respond? Do we respond in anger or do we respond in a way that pleases God? And I'm not saying there's no such thing as righteous anger, so don't, don't think I'm saying that. But how, how do we respond? What is our aim? And this is what he says, For we must all appear uh, before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are well known to God and also can trust are well known to your consciences. For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf, that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not at heart. For if we were beside ourselves, it is of God. If we are of sound mind, it is for you. I want to go back to verse 11. The idea that we will stand before God. And I want you to look at 11. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Have you ever thought what it's going to be like when you stand before Jesus? I mean, we have this mentality that, man, this is going to be great, and it is, but we're, we, we're going to just fall down, and we're going to kind of, it's going to kind of be this idea that, that we control the situation. You know, I die, take my last breath, and I'm there before God, and at the judgment seat, I'm going to stand before Him, and I control it. I've heard people go like, man, I can't wait, I'm going to high-five Jesus. I'm like, no, you're not. If you, if you think that, you're talking about the wrong Jesus. Paul describes it as terror. It's where we get our word phobia from. You that are scared of snakes and scared of bugs and scared of everything and whatever your phobia is, there's a reason you have that, and it's that you are overwhelmed and in awe of that thing that you're scared of. And Paul says that we are going to be in awe and overwhelmed by the presence of God in this situation. So what does he do? He says, we understand that, that it is a, a, a terrible thing to fall into the hands of a living God and that God is this all-consuming fire. And because Paul says, I know that, I persuade men. When's the last time you persuaded? When's the last time you just went up to somebody that you didn't disagree with on anything and like, man, I just want to tell you, I know that, that this is a terrible thing. I understand that, that this critical race theory and this social justice and abortion and all of these things are terrible, but can I get to the real issue? You're going to stand before Jesus. Think about it. And not only are you going to stand before him, you're not going to say a word. And he is going to look at you and he is going to judge you. What if instead of the church getting so angry and mad and actually reflecting hatred that we go to him in love and go, man, I just want to tell you, you're going to stand before Jesus. Whether you hate me or not, you're going to stand before him. So I, I just want to come to you and persuade you. Because here's the issue. The issue is not the color of a person's skin. The issue is not that. The issue is, is this is a system that is satanic and it is backed by the enemy and it's filled with hatred and division and slander and murder and idolatry and covetousness. And the enemy is coming full force to kill, steal, and destroy. He is coming to divide churches. He is coming to divide families. He is coming to divide nations. And instead of standing back, we need to go, man, do you realize you are going to stand before Jesus. Because ultimately it's a sin problem. And here's the sad part. Is the evangelical church is buying into it. 
fully. Because it uses the term social justice. Nobody wants to deny justice. And they use the term racial reconciliation. Can I tell you something? You will never reconcile with somebody until you're reconciled to God. Never. It doesn't matter if it's your own brother that looks just like you. You have to be reconciled to God. Notice what he says, whether present or absent. Man, listen, whether I'm in front of you or I'm absent, I want you to understand that I want to please the Lord because everything will be revealed. And we need to be in complete and total law over what God says. We need to be saturated with the Scripture. Yet the evangelical church, and most Christians today, or a lot of Christians today, care more about school boards and media and what the government says. And the evangelical church, they're screaming, needs to repent for being white. No, we need to repent for being woke. Because we've bought into it. And we're allowing a system that is headed by Satan, the darkness and the principalities, we're allowing him to divide. And what we need to do is we need to drag that sorry sucker right into the light and expose him for who he is. So what is the real problem? The tension is not race. The tension is sin. That's the case if it's the problem is ultimately sin. And i got to tell you something, you got to cut sin at the root. you got to get down below the dirt and you got to cut it at the root in order to get rid of it. But then who is the only solution? Look at verse 14. For the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. And if he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. The problem is the sinful nature. It's the old man. It's the old nature. It's the, the nature of Adam. And here's the deal. Everybody sitting in this room, at one time, you were wretched it doesn't matter what class they want to put you in at the end of the day there's one we say there's only one race there's human race and i agree with that but i'm gonna tell you something that human race is divided into two classes and that's lost or saved and every one of us deserve the punishment that god poured on his son jesus and we can't look at somebody who is destroying our nation and they're destroying all the, the foundations and we can't look at them any less than we should look at ourselves when we look in the mirror. Because outside of Jesus and outside the grace of God and outside the blood of being applied and outside of Jesus being raised from the dead and sitting at the right hand of God and outside of the Holy Spirit drawing this old wretched boy, I was bound and determined that I was going to bust hell wide open, but Jesus came along and he rescued me and he'll do the same exact thing for anybody else that'll turn to him in repentance. And God has called me to be that person to reconcile them back to himself. We all have a sinful nature. And what CRT does is says, because you're a certain color, you're the problem. Now, I want to tell you something. The problem is, is that we're sinners. That's the problem. And therefore, we should pay. And I want to just go up to them and go, man, it's already been paid for. <laughs> Jesus paid for it. He ain't look like either one of us. I don't care what you say. Y'all get that in a minute. It's always someone else to blame. I'm not responsible for what I do. Whoever is blamed then is the one who must give an account. Man, what if Jesus lived that way? But this is a lie. So if the problem is a sinful nature, the solution is the risen Christ. Notice what it says. For the love of Christ compels us. It's the idea of it seizing us. Because we understand that, that Christ died for all, therefore all have died. 
And Ephesians 2 says that, hey, you were dead in your trespasses and in your sins. Every one of us were dead until Jesus came and rescued us and gave us life through the Holy Spirit. The thing is, is that's every person that's ever lived on the earth. It's not a system, but a person. Jesus didn't die and shed his blood for a system. He died and, and shed his blood for a person. We must believe that. We must believe that Christ really did die for all. That he died for, for the black man, and he died for the white man, and he died for the Asian man, and he died for the poor woman, and he died for the, the orphan, and he died for the rich, and he died for that. Jesus died for all. And if Jesus died for all, and Jesus has been risen from the dead, then he is the only solution to critical race theory. He is the only solution to being reconciled. So then ultimately, how should the church respond? Isn't that the big question? Notice what verse 17 says says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And that, that's a great verse. And we can celebrate that and jump up and down like, yes, Lord, you saved me. I'm a new man now. I'm on my way to heaven. And I got some kind of mansion that, yeah, and it's there. And, and all this stuff's going to be there. And we make heaven all about us. But here is the part that we really don't want to read. But I'm going to read it anyway. Now, all things are of God. If you're in here today and you've been saved, everything about you should be to glorify the name of Jesus. What happened? Now all things are God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us, uh-oh, the ministry of reconciliation. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself not imputing their trespasses to them and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. Don't buy into the fact that, because if, if we buy into the fact that they are our enemies, therefore we don't have any responsibility to share the gospel with them, then we're no better than they are in what they believe. But we've been called to be ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf to be reconciled to God. And then verse 21, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. So, so how do we respond? We stand on truth. It is the only answer for reconciliation. And I'm more concerned about being reconciled to God than I am racial reconciliation. Because I can tell you right now, I have friends of all colors, close friends. And I've never felt threatened to walk into any one of their homes. Why? Because we're reconciled to God. And because we're reconciled to God, regardless of our skin color, we're brothers or we're sisters in Christ. So the only answer is reconciliation. It's the only answer for wrong. And I want to say this. We don't need critical race theory. We don't need Black Lives Matter. We don't need Antifa. We need Christ and his word. That's what this nation needs. Vody Balkan was asked, if the church needed CRT, and this was his response, and I think it's amazing. There is nothing that I am aware of that we can glean from CRT. I know this. There is nothing that CRT brings to the table on race, social justice, that the Bible doesn't speak better. We don't need CRT for that. The Bible is very clear when it comes to reconciliation between people and peoples, and CRT doesn't bring anything to the table that is remotely on the level that we find in Scripture. But what it does bring is everything we find contrary to Scriptures. We don't need it. What do we need? The infallible word called the Bible 
where it's absolutely an explosive redemption, blood-bought reconciliation in Christ-exalting harmony. The only way this can be taken care of is through the Word of God. And that has to be the basis. So we stand on the truth, but then we obey His Word. We are new. The Bible says we're not who we used to be. We, we are now new. We are transformed. We are ministers of reconciliation. You know how we fight that war that I was talking about in 2 Corinthians 10? We, we are ministers of reconciliation. And I know that the challenge is, is that, well, they're, they're saying it's our fault or they hate us or, or all of these things. And, and can I tell you something? And, and I'm not minimalizing this, this situation and what it really means to our nation and our churches. But I want to tell you something. They weren't too favorable to Jesus. They hated him. His own people hated him. It wasn't even somebody that looked different than him. His own people, his own brothers denied him. You know what they did? They took him and they hung him on a cross. I mean, at the end of the day, our war is not with people, it's with the enemy. And we have victory over that. How do we fight? We fight with the gospel. And the thing is, is the church underestimates the power of the gospel. I would love to sit down with one of these people in the CRT field and just say, man, can I share the gospel with you? And believe in all of my heart that the same Jesus that jerked me out of hell in 1997 will pull them from the flames just as well. And we have to believe that whenever we share the gospel of Jesus Christ, even to our enemies, that their lives can be changed. That's why Matthew 5 says we got to love them and pray for those who persecute us and want to do evil to us. We have to get on our faces and not go, God, they're wrong, and God, it's their fault that this nation is divided. No, if we get on our knees and we begin to pray for our enemies and we begin to say, God, give me a gospel opportunity for them, we have to believe that the same Jesus that saved everybody in this room that is saved, that saved the crackhead, that saved all the adulterers, that saved the murderers, that same Jesus can save some kind of jacked up professor at a university. And we have to be willing to go and get on the front lines and fight because if we want the freedom, we need to fight for it. But we need to be more concerned about eternity and their souls in hell versus our comfort in the nation we live in. Because if they get saved, God will change them. We glorify his name. Let me ask you a question. Do your thoughts on critical race theory glorify the name of Jesus? And I had to pray several times over the last few months doing research and being angry. I walked away from the Southern Baptist Convention in 2018 broken. Let me tell you why I was broken, and if this offends you, I'm sorry. But I was broken because I felt like that every problem in the world was because I was a white pastor. That's the way I was made to feel in my own convention. But then I had to make the decision, what am I going to do about it? Am I going to get mad and complain and talk about it? Or am I going to get on my face and go, God, they can be changed just like you changed me. Don't fall, please hear me, don't fall into the division and the wiles of the devil. Don't watch this stuff. Listen, if you watch this stuff and you see it on the news and it infuriates you to the point where hatred comes in your heart, turn it off. Because we're not citizens of this world. We belong to the kingdom of God. We belong to a kingdom that has victory. We belong to a kingdom that's full of all kind of color and ethnic groups and tongues and nations. And we belong to a God who has victory. And we belong to a kingdom. And if that stuff makes you mad, you need to turn it off and open up this right here. And I promise you, you'll start to feel a lot better. Be the agent of truth and love. It's okay to say it's wrong, y'all. 
It's okay to just point blank, tell them you're wrong and you're destroying our schools, you're destroying our churches, you're destroying our nation. But don't just tell them the truth without telling them the love of God in the process. Because truth without love can do more damage than anything if it's not done with the right compassion. And then live every moment to glorify His name. And can I tell you this today in closing? CRT is already defeated. CRT is not Lord. There is only one Lord and He's Lord of all. He's Lord over the white man. He's Lord over the black man, the brown man, and the red man. He's Lord over the poor man, the rich man, and the everything in between man. He is Lord over the world, the USA, Tennessee, and He's Lord over Somerville. He is Lord over critical race theory, Black Lives Matter, and Antifa. He's Lord over the Republican Party, the Democrat Party, the White House. He's Lord over the Congress. He's Lord over the Supreme Court. He is Lord over the individual, the family, the fathers, the mothers, and even the children. He is Lord over the saved man, and He's also the Lord over the lost man. He's Lord over the oppressed and oppressor, the advantage the disadvantage. He's Lord over the low class, the middle class, and the high class. He is the Lord, and He has a name that is above all names, and that His name every knee shall bow in heaven, on the earth, and under the earth, and every tongue shall confess that He is Lord. And how I know critical race theory doesn't win, because one day the Bible says that standing around the throne of God will be somebody from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation and they're going to be singing worthy is the lamb in one voice and in one accord and I'm telling you they lose why because he's worthy of it all and in this place today if we'll become saturated by God's word and more broken and humble and submitted to his word there would be hope and the reason is is because Jesus is alive what will we do today, church? What will we do? Do we care enough about our nation? Do we care enough about our enemies? Do we care enough about our children? Do we care enough about our families? that we would be willing for just a few minutes to meet down at the altar and get on our faces and call out to the only name that can change it all, and His name is Jesus. Or are we willing to say, man, that was true, and walk right out the door and let things continue to be what they are. Because change doesn't come from the critical race theory system. The change doesn't come from your favorite president. The change does not come from even your county mayor. The change comes when God's people humble themselves in front of each other on their faces and call out to God. If you don't believe me, read the Bible. When God's people get on their face, God moves. The Bible says that where two or three agree and touch heaven, that God does move. So what will we do? Will it be just the, the norm? Or does this hit us at the core of who we are and in our heart to say, God, if you don't change it, it'll never be changed. And I want to tell you all something. I'm just crazy enough to believe that God can bring reconciliation. And I believe it will be God that does it. But even if He don't here on this earth, I'm looking forward to the day where I can lock arms with my black brother, my Asian brother, my Ecuadorian brothers, and just stand around the throne of God in awe. Of him. What do we do, church? Are we bold enough today to say, God, I want to see change? Start with me. God, start with me. 
Because this has to come from God's people. We're the only ones with the answer. Unless we submit ourselves and humble ourselves, then should we really expect change. But God moves. I said this not long ago, and I'm going to say it again, and then I'm going to get out of the way. Prayer is the muscle that moves the omnipotent. If we're not willing to pray as a corporate body over this situation, then we shouldn't expect God to move on our behalf. But if we're willing to get on our knees and call out on Him, I believe we can expect to see change. It wouldn't it be something that if all the world knew that there was still a God in Somerville, Tennessee, because Warren Community Church got on their knees and started praying. Don't ever underestimate what God can do through a bunch of people praying. So, Father, we're going to come to you today. We're going to allow you to do what only you can do. God, nothing that we can do. God, but what you can do. And we're going to trust you by faith today, Lord, that if we will call out on your name by faith, we'll call out on your name in humility, that, God, you will move. And, God, more than anything, God, the people that are lost will be saved. That, God, the people that are pushing this division and this hatred and this idolatry, God, I would give anything to stand in heaven with them one day and worship you because you reached down and saved them. So, God, give me the heart to pray for them. God, we just believe that, God, you are able. So what I'm going to do this morning all across this room is every head bowed, every eye closed. And listen, if you want to come to the altar, you come. I challenge you to come. I'm asking you to come. But if you choose not to, that's fine. You can just, get, just pray where you're at. But all across this room, man, we need to call out on Jesus. I want you to think about the statement I opened up with. That this is the most challenging thing to the evangelical church in over a hundred years. And if we don't pray for reformation, don't be surprised if the evangelical church doesn't fall apart here in this nation. But if we pray and we believe, and we believe that God can change people's lives, then God will move. Thank you for listening to Sunday Sermons. If you want to learn more about us, visit warrencommunitychurch.org.